The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. All right, thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with my guest, Mr. Quint Studer. Quint, are you ready to share with some quality people? I sure am, thank you. All right, wonderful. Well, Quint, we love to start every show with positive affirmations to really get our momentum going. So I would love if you could possibly share a leadership quote or a leadership mindset, but also tell us why does it appeal to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? Well, one of my favorite things I've always thought of is if you, if you see a problem and you have a solution, you have a resp- human responsibility to bring your solution to the table. And I've always liked that because I think most people know the problem and even have a solution. But I think over the years, we've either created in healthcare cultures where people are either afraid of being wrong, afraid of being criticized, afraid of making a mistake. So I I always like the fact that, you know, if you see a problem and you have a solution, you have a human responsibility, especially in healthcare. Because in healthcare, our solutions save lives. Our solutions make a difference, um, you know, with patients' lives, but they also make a difference with physicians' lives and employees' lives. So that's one of my my favorite quotes that I ever came up with. Right. No, that's wonderful. It's an awesome quote to get us started. And, you know, I have to admit that given, again, your phenomenal just career story and background, in my head as I asked it, I was like, I wonder which leadership quote or mindset he was going to go with. I imagine you have a tremendous amount to pull from. But, um, Quint, no, that, I think that gets us off to a perfect start. And I'm really going to, again, just excited about this entire conversation. So thank you once again. I know I've probably said it about 20 times already, um, but would love to move to the next question because for any of our um, quality people, our listeners that don't know you or your story or the tremendous leadership impact and influence you've had across the industry, uh, we'd love to get you to briefly describe it, um, share with us, you know, your professional background, what led you into the career path. But again, I I just want to highlight that, you know, the work that you've done has had a tremendous impact on me. So thanking you for that and talking, uh, you know, just kind of tossing our folks out there if they're not already familiar with it. I think this is going to be a really good introduction. So excited to hear like how you can share this story in only a few minutes. That's really where I was going is to limit the time because again, tremendous, tremendous career path. So you've talked to me before, you know, briefly, it's not part of my lingo. People used to say, can you speak for 15 minutes? I said, that's my intro 15 minutes. Um, I, I got into healthcare. I was a special ed teacher. It was the best thing that happened. I spent 10 years 
as a special ed teacher. People said, how does somebody with special ed background end up being in healthcare? Well, I'll get into that a little bit, but as a special ed teacher, I think it's the same skill set we need in any leadership. The first thing you do is you diagnose the situation. And with a child, you diagnose the child or assess the child. If you're in leadership, I think sometimes leaders, Jarvis, rush too much into the solution without doing an assessment. You would never want a doctor just to jump into a treatment plan without an assessment. So I've created a lot of tools we'll talk about over the years to sort of assess the situation. Then you set a high goal. And I, I think, um, you know, with a child who's got special needs, you set the goal as high as you can because the parents want the child to be as independent as possible. I think in healthcare, you know, I used to joke, I'd go into an organization and they mission statement would say excellent, excellent, high quality. And you'd look at their results and they weren't excellent or they weren't high quality. And I'd say, you got two options now. You either got to change your mission statement to say average quality, Monday through Friday were really excellent, weekends it's pretty bad, or you've got to get better. And of course they'd all want to get better, but as you know, we're going to talk about getting better is pretty darn hard. Then you've got to put together, once you set your goal, you got to get everybody aligned. And I think, you know, how, how do we get everybody on the same team understanding what tools and techniques, because it's all about consistent. The challenge in healthcare when you're 24 seven is we lack consistency. And all it takes is one bad experience, one staff member that's not totally aligned and you just can't get the results. And then you got to use a lot of reward and recognition, which I think we're very weak in healthcare. We are so used to looking at what's wrong, we miss it what's right. In fact, in healthcare, our people aren't even good at getting a compliment. I bet you your listeners will find out, you try to compliment somebody in healthcare, mm -hmm. they argue with you. I can do better. Oh, you don't know. You have to reward and recognition. But then the key thing is you do have to hold people accountable. And in healthcare, we struggle at times making those tough decisions. So my special ed background kicked in. I ended up working in a small drug and alcohol hospital. Um, I did supervisor training on how to identify problem employees or problem employees having difficulties. Um, a, a HR person at a hospital in Janesville, Wisconsin said, why don't you come work here in our marketing community relations department? I did that. The CEO really liked me. He kept giving me new jobs. I ended up being head of the medical group and an insurance company. We did quite well. I got recruited by Mark Clement to come to Holy Cross Hospital where he was a CEO. I went in as the COO and he, I complained to him that our patients weren't happy that the docs that he wanted me to bring in more patients, but I couldn't do it because the docs told me the patients weren't happy. I thought he'd assign it to a chief nurse officer. He said, well, you're in charge of patient satisfaction. Going back to my special ed background, Jarvis, I went to South Bend, Indiana to spend time with Irwin Press and Rod Ganey. And I, they said I was the first hospital administrator to ever show up to really learn how the measurement is done to assess it. I sort of learned about it. Then I went to Southwest Airlines asked them how they get such great customer service. They told me he had to focus in on the employee, to which then I focused on the employee. Then I ran into Mark Clement, brought Clay Sherman in, who wrote a book called The New American Hospital, and it was all about leadership training. I did that, did quite well, got recruited to Baptist Hospital in Pensacola, did well there. Healthcare Advisory Board came out with a book that said, we're the two best hospitals in the country in patient satisfaction. One was Holy Cross, one was Baptist. People said, hmm, maybe there's something to this stuff. 2000, I started the Studer Group and um, just wanted to make a difference. And um, I was doing talks and somebody said, do you have a book? And I said, no. And they said, well, you need to write a book. And I said, it seems awful hard. And 
They said, well, you can charge more. I said, I already feel guilty what I'm charging right now. Then they said, well, you'll get more speaking. I said, I already got enough. And they said, what about that nurse manager that will never be able to come afford to come to one of your seminars? Don't you care about her? And it hit me hard. So I wrote Hardwiring Excellence and um, I had a contract and they were going to charge $68 a book. I thought that was too much. So I said, I'll self-publish. And they said, nobody ever makes a self-published book that sells very many. And I did, and I did enough so it could keep the price low. And of course it did 1.6 million, I think. And um, did that. And then in about 2012, um, brought in an investment to Studer Group. Um, 2015, Huron bought Studer Group. They're a nice company. 2016, I, I sort of resigned to do some community work. I've been doing a lot of community work. And um, wrote a new book called Building Vibrant Communities. And then I wrote another book called Busy Leader Handbook. And so now it's sort of getting back back in the healthcare world a little bit with things like this, because I still want to make a difference. Well, you know, uh, so much to really kind of touch on. That was a perfect summary, a perfect uh, just overview and analysis of your career path. Um, I have to thank you again personally for self-publishing because um, for me, I came into healthcare around 2007, but I think it was about 2009, 2010 when I came across Hardwiring Excellence. And I read that, um, you know, again, it, it, my entire career path has been lean, Six Sigma process improvement work in healthcare. Um, but when I came across that book coming from outside of healthcare into healthcare <clears throat> with the background and the skills that I offer, um, that book gave me permission to try to lead high quality, high excellence. So, um, so I appreciate you taking that approach with it. But um, again, everything that you shared there, um, I, I definitely, you know, as we go through our conversation today, I want to come back to even your point on the focus on the employee, what you learned through your experience, you know, shadowing over at um, Southwest, the way you went out to other areas to learn how to pull some of these practices into healthcare. Um, those are many of the things that stood out to me from all the books that I followed and read across you know, your literature. So um, just want to thank you for that. Quint, I am going to move us to the next question. Um, and again, I'm, I'm touching on probably some very high level topics with this next question for you, but we'd love to see, um, get your thoughts here, but feel free to take it and run in any particular way. But based on your expertise, Quint, around change management and definitely, you know, hardwiring excellence, what are three critical topics or, or concepts that healthcare leaders should have on their radars? I think there's personal, there's personal concepts and then there's, prof, you know, there's sort of leadership concepts. And let me start, I know we're probably out of sequence with some of your questions. I think in healthcare, the biggest issue that a leader must have is their own self-awareness. And, and I think if you're not self-aware yourself, then you're not going to be able to lead. So um, years ago, about uh, 2013, 14, Harry Gruner, who's a managing partner of a large venture capital firm, I said, when you invest in a company, what do you look for? And I thought he'd say, can you raise prices? What's their market position? He said, how aware is the founder? And I've really taken that since then, because when I go into organizations, and for years I did, you're trying to always create self-awareness, because obviously these people want to be successful, but they're not. So what's keeping them from being successful? So I think self-awareness starts it. Number two, I think then you've got to say, how coachable are you? I have a column that I write every, every week, and this week was on 
asking for outside help. And you know, the number one competitor always is, we can do this on our own. And Jarvis, I used to sort of get shocked when you go into a place, they've been trying it for six years, they still suck, and they somehow say, but I think we can do it on their own. And I'd love, usually you had to have a CEO that was brave enough to say to his team, hey guys, we've been trying to do it on our own now for three years and we still aren't any good. So maybe we do have to get some outside help. So I, I think you have to be coachable and you have to be willing to change. You know, we're all being coachable right now. Um, when I started Studer Group, I had to become a more flexible person because 50% of our workforce worked out of their home. So I had to become more flexible and more trusting and create virtual tools versus in a hospital, everybody was there. So I have to be more coachable. Um, we do a, if my Studer family accompanies now, we do mid-year review. And one of the questions is, you know, how can I be better? And one of the people that report to me gave me some really good feedback. He said, you sometimes get too far ahead of me and you get ahead of me and then I can't get the employees sped up because you've moved too quick. And since then I've changed my behavior and backed off and always talked with him. And then I, I think the third thing is you just gotta be authentic. You, you've got to be yourself and not put on airs. Now, when it comes to an organization and quality, I think you've got to nail the measure. And when you nail the measurement, you've got to not rational. Because this is what I find Jarvis and organizations all the time when their quality's not hitting the goal. It's always some other reason. We, you don't understand. I'll give you an example. This is, you know, with your HCA background, I think you'll like this. I got a message on LinkedIn not too long ago, and it's, you know, Quinn, is there any way you could talk to our leadership team? We're really down and out, this COVID-19. And if you would just do a, you know, talk to our leadership team, it would make all the difference in the world. And these were nice people. So I said, fine. And they got their leaders in a room. And at HCA, they'd been in a top 10 in patients at, you know, patient. And they dropped down to like 100 or over a little, you know, 103 or four, something like that. So I, I, you know, I got on the call and they made it a surprise and, you know, they sort of did a Zoom call and, you know, and, and then I, they mentioned to me, well, you know, the issue is the reason we got so bad is because of COVID. And I had to give them the bad news that COVID is national. So the other hospitals were managing it better than them. So I think the challenge in quality is you've got to not rationalize poor, poor, performance away. You've got to be able to look at it. When I got to Pensacola and Baptist, a Dr. Lahowski came up to me and told me he had too many hospital acquired infections. And I went to our infection control person and I said, do we have too many hospital acquired infections? She said, yes. I said, what percentage are we? She said, well, it depends on what you mean. I said, like when we got to the point where do the patient know, not know, do you report it? And um, she said, well, you can't hold me responsible for infections. I said, but you're the director of infections. How, well, who do I hold? And, and so we had to create systems with the managers. So I think you've got to measure, you've got to set high goals, but then you've got to ask your, yourself some questions. Are one, do the managers, have you given them the opportunity to learn the skills? So whether it's, you know, I grew up, it's sort of interesting because you say about outside help. I grew up when you had to get better, you had to either look at Toyota or GE. So you're either gonna go lean or Six Sigma. Those are the two places you are gonna go. And, and both of them had strong measurement, then they had strong um, training though. And that's what we miss sometimes in healthcare. We wanna just put in the tool and technique without training the manager. Now we might train the manager in maybe a, a technique, 
but we got to train them in more than a technique. How do you run a good meeting? Because if you're running bad meetings, those are getting in your way. How do you hire good talent? Because if you don't have good talent, it doesn't matter. How do you fire non-compliant employees? If you don't fire people, you're not going to be great. So we might teach them a tool and technique and something like lean or high reliability or Six Sigma, but we, we need to do more. I was on a curriculum between the Harvard Business School and we talked about change management. So then you've got to say, do I, am I giving them the opportunity to learn the skill? And the second point is, do they have the ability? Because sometimes we promote people from within, which makes all the sense in the world, they just might not have the skill set. And, and we put them in some bad spots. I was in, speaking in an organization in December that had spent, they had spent more money on training a manager's Jarvis of any place I've ever seen. And I said, with all the training you've got, if you're a leader and you're not still getting results, you just aren't in the right spot right now. You've got to get out because it's not a training issue, it's a performance issue. So I think that's the key thing. And then that's building that accountability. And so uh, I think it's, with on the professional side, it's, do I have the self-awareness? Am I coachable? And do I have the accountability? No, I, I loved every point that you made there because those three points being self-aware, being coachable, accountability, and authentic. Um, but then you also touched on the measurements. Like we have to be able to keep pace of the scoreboard and know exactly where we are. Um, I love your additional points. Do they have the skills? Can they actually learn the skills? Are we giving them an opportunity to use the skills? I, I think those are so many things that I see um, from the work that I do in terms of just training and teaching and coaching. Folks, I, I constantly get the feedback when it's, these are great. This knowledge is great. I want to use this all day and every day, but I never get the chance to. And so, you know, I tend to push a lot more. Okay, well, guys, let's go to the gym, but let's just round, like see a problem and document it and let's come up with some on-the-spot solutions if we can't do a full-fledged project. But I think a lot of your points there touch into still many of the realities I see on a daily basis too. So resonates very well. Well, Jarvis, I think the other thing is when we think of training, we don't realize we've got to train in a whole bunch of other things. So I come in and whether it's, again, you know, high reliability, Toyota, Lean, Baldridge, any of those. Well, I want to do those things, but you better teach me how to run a good meeting. You better teach me how to hire. You better teach me how to communicate. You better teach yeah. me how to fire. Because if I don't do those things, I'm not going to be successful. So I think it's, uh, again, when I was, you know, on the Harvard Curriculum Committee, we came up with about 15 key skills that a leader must have. Because um, if I'm not doing those other things, it's taking me away from, from fixing things. And then the other thing, Jarvis, and I was talking to Ed Brokowski owns Midwest, um, Midwest um, it's a logistics company. And I was talking to him this last week. And I said, the hardest thing for me to learn, Jarvis, as a leader, was the magic words, what do you think we should, what do you mm -hmm. recommend? Because I think your employees do know the solution, but they don't want to be wrong. And I, I was talking to some communication experts years ago. And I said, well, what happens if they say they don't know? Say, well, if somebody says they don't know, say, well, if you did know, what would you recommend? And they said 70% of the time, the person will then give you the recommendation because you've now lowered the bar a little bit. So I think it's that ability to build that culture where your employees are willing to give you the solutions or give you at least some ideas on how to make things better. 
All right. Perfect. No, those are all fantastic thoughts. And uh, Quinn, I'm going to move you to our next question, which again, just uh, picking your brain and your thoughts and experience around this, I think I'm just so interested in. But um, Quinn, I would love for you to now talk about your biggest professional success and your biggest professional failure and share with us um, what impact did it have on you as a leader, but definitely what did you learn from both of those situations? I think my, my biggest personal success was um, at Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago when um, we were um, really in the bottom pits of patient satisfaction and um, we were supposed to get better and um, I failed because as I mentioned, I said I went to Prescani and Southwest Airlines, but that was only after failing. That was after me thinking I could do it on my own. And I mean, you know, this is common sense, treat people like you want to be treated. This is what they taught you in kindergarten. And after um, doing that, and then the results weren't moving, the pain was unbelievable, Jarvis, because here I am, I moved my family to Chicago, I'm the chief operating officer, and I'm looking at failure. And I'm thinking, no way, I'm not going to be able to pull this stuff off. My career is like deep sixing real quick. I'm, I'm going down the chute. And I um, was going to get out of healthcare. I was going to get out of healthcare because, you know, I just thought I'll get out of healthcare. It's too hard. You know, I was whining. I'm a whiner. I mean, I was whining in 1993 about Medicare cuts, Medicaid cuts, and doctors taking things out of the hospital. And um, so I went to a guy named Frank Milos, who wasn't in healthcare, and I told him all my problems in healthcare. Told him, could he, I give him my resume and could he help me maybe network out? And about a week later, he met with me and said, you know, I've been thinking about you. I, here's an envelope with three decals on it. Put one in your mirror in your car, one in your mirror in your nearest bathroom at work, and one in your bathroom at home. And said, you're looking at the problem. And he told me the issue was me. And all of a sudden, that's when I became teachable. Sometimes you have to surrender. And that's when I went to Press Ganey. And that's when I went to Southwest Airlines. And that's when Mark Clement brought in Clay Sherman. And Clay Sherman... We all had mandatory training and we ended up going from, you know, below the fifth percentile to the 90 something percentile, broke every record possible. But I also learned this Jarvis, and this is probably a real key. I learned that when you try to hit a score, you don't hit a score in healthcare. Employees don't like the word score. In fact, when I get asked, how do you improve HCAP results? I said, you quit talking HCAPs. Don't even mention the word. Talk about pain management, side effects of medication. So it happened in 19, we, we went from low scores in six months to about 72. The goal was 75. And I was pretty excited because we were moving a number. And that's when I got this letter from a, a gentleman whose mother, father had died at our hospital. He was a widow, widower, and he was the only child. And I got the letter because I was in charge of patient satisfaction. And he talked about the fact that how a nurse had held his father's hand while he died. And he said, I hope you appreciate that nurse. And Jarvis, I got into healthcare for purpose worthwhile work and making a difference, but it's so easy to lose why we got there because we get so caught up in numbers. So I think our biggest success was taking an inner city hospital in Englewood side of Chicago, more shootings per thousand than any place in the United States at the time. 33% of our babies were cocaine positive. We spoke 14 languages in our hospital. We, we had all double, and we had two to four patients in every room. 
and we ended up leading the country in patient satisfaction. But more than that, the employees loved what they did and I liked going to work. So that was my, I think our, our best success. I think my, my biggest failure was outside of healthcare. Um, and I've had failures in healthcare, but when I was at Bap, uh, in Pensacola, there was a small TV station that became available. And I thought, hmm, I can probably run a TV station. Now, why I thought that, I have no idea because I've never done it. And so um, I signed a management contract to run this TV station for two years and had no idea what I was doing. At the end of two years, I said, I can't do this. So the lesson I've learned, Jarvis, I got to be real careful that I don't get overconfident and get too far away from my skills. Because when I get away from my skill set, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I am so incompetent that I'm unconsciously incompetent because I'm so far removed from knowing what I'm doing. I don't even know what I don't know. So that's one of the more recent losses that I, I did about mm -hmm. three, four years ago. All right. No, I appreciate both of those stories. Um, the first, you know, based around your success, um, tremendous impact because, you know, we all hear the stories for those at least living outside of Chicago, you know, just that entire environment and the things you mentioned in terms of the demographics. So, um, I mean, just hats off to the leadership transformation there. Um, for your failure, I guess, let me know your thoughts on this. I want to maybe kind of balance your failure just a little bit because I also heard the, um, the internal risk taker that you are um, to, you know, get at least, you know, brave enough to even try something um, as unique as owning a TV station. So, for our listeners who are, you know, the majority of my listeners kind of fall below the age of 40 and, you know, they're all healthcare leaders who are on the come up right now. Any thoughts in terms of just how do you take appropriate risk, smart risk with your career or the things you want to venture into um, to, to keep moving, you know, yourself, your progress, your development forward? I think it's interesting too, because I think I've, I think first of all, if you ever want to, let's say, do something and start your own company or branch out like you have, Jarvis, we read about these 19 and 20-year-old entrepreneurs and we think we've got to do it. Most people are very good entrepreneurs before they're an entrepreneur. So I will say one of the things I always did quite well was always trying to create tools and techniques. So I was always trying to say, okay, how do we create this tool or how do we document it or how do we, how do we like, you know, you and I talked about the book, E-Myth Revisited. How do we create a standard operating procedure? Because it's all about repeatable success, you know, because you don't, in, in healthcare, I've always found that people are ready to give up on a tool and a technique too soon because they say it doesn't work. Normally, you don't know if it works or not unless you're doing it all the time. And in healthcare, because we're so weak at always, we give up on the tool and technique because we say, well, see, it doesn't work. But then you go back and you say, well, are we doing it always? So for example, in healthcare with rounding, we used to measure rounding. So we would round, we would measure every, let's say nurses for this example, how often do they round? And we found that the nurses, when they started rounding every day on every patient would automatically get better results. So now if they weren't getting results, it's because they weren't rounding consistently. So all of a sudden they'd say, well, rounding's not working. Now, rounding works when you do it. You're just not doing it enough. It's like me saying, working out isn't, wor isn't working. Well, how many times have you worked out? Well, I've been doing it once a week now for a month and it hasn't worked or you're not doing it enough. Now, the other thing is once in a while, 
you get Jarvis a point where you'd find somebody is doing it enough, but they're not getting the results. Well, now you can go in and do the skill set technique. So I think you normally when I look at leaders, I think you've got to ask yourself, how good are you at doing it consistently and always? The second thing you talked about, which I've changed my mind, I tell people now, because I was late, I didn't get into healthcare until I was in my early 30s because I was a special ed teacher. Then I had like five kids and you're a little scared to like venture out when you've got a lot of kids. I tell people, if you're going to take a risk, the earlier in your career you take the risk, the better. Mm. Because you don't have the, the, the human responsibility <laughs> that you've got to feed and take care of. Tommy Duncan, who runs uh, Trusted Insurance in Washington, D.C., um, I had him come to EntreCon every year in Pensacola. I do this two-day conference for entrepreneurs. And um, he's, again, one of the minority insurance products for Medicaid in the Washington, D.C. area. And he spoke, and his first slide said, before you start your own company, don't do a lot of research. And I was going to help Tommy when he got done. I said, Tommy, I think your slide's a little messed up. It said, before you start a company, don't do a lot of research. I think you meant do a lot of research. He said, no, don't do a lot of research. If you do the research, you'll never start a company because it's really hard. So I think for young people, I think you get better by taking risks. People said, how did you become a good speaker? I said, well, I took speaking. I mean, I didn't take speaking, but I took opportunities. Yeah. So you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations because you've got to put yourself enough in uncomfortable situations where you do it enough, it gets comfortable. But the problem is we don't want to do those things. So you sort of get forced to take tough decisions. So I think you have to become comfortable with discomfort if you're going to be. Well, and that, that feedback there, Quinn, I think that goes 100% for becoming a good leader and kind of staying the corporate route definitely is my experience now as I'm becoming hopefully a better and better entrepreneur. But I have my days when I'm just like, I just want to sit and not touch a computer and not, you know, network or anything on LinkedIn. And then it's like, nope, that's the relaxed version of me. So everything that I find myself doing puts me in some unique, awkward position. But, you know, again, even as I try to focus on becoming a really solid corporate leader, it was the same thing. It was like, I'm not in front of, you know, vice presidents and presidents and us, how do I get to present in front of them? So then I'm in, you know, in that space so I can see how they act. I can start to model my behaviors given, you know, my focus at that point to try to be an executive. So, um, so yeah, I think that's really solid feedback that goes every which way for our listeners. I think too, if you look at every, every other thing, if you look at how doctors are trained, doctors are trained by doing it, getting observed and getting sure sometimes you've got to put people in a learning lab. So you've got to put people. So when I say to somebody, they said, I'd like to be a professional speaker. I said, okay, come do a presentation for me. And they said, well, then I would say this. I said, no, don't tell me then you would say this. Say it as if you're saying it. So, so whoop. Hello? Yep, I'm still here. Okay, we got, okay. So I'd say, say it, say it as if you're, you're, you're saying it. Don't, don't, don't act like that. So for you, Jarvis, I would get a group of your friends and say, you're a CNO, you're a CEO, you're a COO. I'm going to present and I need you. I'm going to present as if I'd present and, and you need to help me become better. Help me push back. I do that quite a bit with people. Nice. Try to get them to, to 
uh, role play and say, well, you might want to say it this way. Um, you don't, you, the way you said it, you sort of insulted them. Don't act like they don't know, don't try, um, you know, because everybody does, you know, and, and I also don't want people to feel bad. I want, when I'm done, people to feel better. So I might say, you know, it's normal what you're going through. This is where most places are at. Here's some things you might want to try. Um, it's sort of neat. I remember getting a call from Fred Loop at Cleveland Clinic, and he's deceased now, but what a great leader. And he said, Quint, we want to hire you to come work at Cleveland Clinic. I was so intimidated by Cleveland Clinic. I kept saying, well, Dr. Loop, I don't, I don't think you need me. He said, oh, no, we really want to work with you. And I think the more I told him he didn't need me, the more he tried to convince me he, they did. And, um, but he just learned by doing it. And I remember with Dr. Loop, here's big Cleveland Clinic. I think we got the contract. And right before we get up, we have a thousand people. He's made it mandatory for them to be there. Some of the greatest doctors in the world. He said, well, this will sort of see whether you, we, you have a contract or not. That's the last thing he said before I went on stage. <laughs> and um, so, so I, you have to put yourself in those situations to get better. You have to sharpen your saws, Stephen Covey, his book, Seven Essential Habits. Absolutely. Well, I, um, I had the opportunity when I was back in college, Quint, to uh, play football. And uh, one of my team members at that time coined a phrase that I think is used across a lot of sports now, but it's big time players make big time plays in big time games. Yeah. And, and that is, that's kind of what I'm hearing is, you know, you just got to put yourself out there and go make the play, but you don't shy away. So. Yeah. Did, did uh, you play at the University of Miami? Yes, sir. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> well, fingers crossed we get a uh, get something of a football season recover for this year, but we'll see. <laughs> next uh next question I have for you, Quinn, and let me let me do a time check. I know we are going to go over my hour. Uh would it be okay to hold you up for a few minutes or oh, I'm fine. I got all day. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, let me uh move to the next question for you. <clears throat> um Quinn, I would love for you to uh share a personal favorite go-to tool or technique that you use when you're working with groups around the concepts of hardwiring excellence? Um, probably my favorite tool or technique is a thing that I put in a book called Straight A Leadership. And it's a down and dirty assessment. And it's basically for executive teams to utilize, but it's really good. And it's basically very quick. And you basically send it out and you, a leader puts in like what level they're at. Are they a senior level? director level, frontline manager. And it just asks some simple questions like, um, how, how consistent is your leadership practices and tools in your organization? Um, how, well, um, how well are you, um, does your current evaluation system hold people accountable? How well does your training prepare you for the current job you're in? Um, how um, easy is it to move best? How well are you at adapting best practices in your organization? How many employees do you currently supervise directly? How many employees are not meeting expectations? How many employees do you have you documented in their personnel file? They're not meeting expectations. Um, and then basically it's maybe five or six more questions. And then when we're done, you get this little tool and all of a sudden is a senior executive. He's, oh my God, my own senior team didn't answer the question that we're consistent. My own senior team said we're not doing training. And probably the other thing, Jarvis, which I think are the key questions, it says, in the past five years, how difficult has the external environment been for your organization? Um, over the next five years, how difficult is the external environment gonna be? Very difficult, difficult, same, 
easy, very easy. And then it says, if you stay the same, same tools, techniques, practices, payer mix, you know, everything stays the same, not payer mix, because that won't stay the same, but everything else stays the same. Over the next five years, results be much better, better, stay the same, get worse or much worse. And what happens, Jarvis, is the senior team says the next five years are going to be much worse. I mean, I mean, much harder, more difficult. Um, then the directors say it's going to be more difficult to difficult. The middle managers, frontline directors sort of say difficult, the same, and so on. Then it says over the next five years. Well, if you stay the same, the senior leaders say it's going to be much worse. Yet you'd be amazed. Probably 30% of the managers say it's going to be the same or better. So what I show them is you've got, you don't have alignment. So basically, you've got to figure out a way to create urgency. John Cotter says 70% of failures, senior leaders are more urgent than the rest of the organization. And the Heath brothers say 80% of failures by lack of clarity. So it's in the book, Straight A Leadership. Um, you know, Firestar Publishing has it. That's owned by Huron. But it's really a great tool and a great technique because it'll tell you how aligned are you, how consistent are you, and how accountable. It'll also help identify how many employees do you have in your organization that are currently not meeting expectations that have no documentation. And it's about 49%. That, so that's probably my favorite tool or technique that I've, I've developed over the years. So I, I kid you not, Quinn, I, I was just working with an executive team about two weeks ago and made a recommendation for them to do an assessment, but using that tool, um, just because I, I've read that book as well and it came to mind. But um, let me kind of spin off and ask this question, because one of the things that I really, again, love with uh, many of your books is the use of very practical tools and very practical models. So I guess my question is kind of what's the mindset? Like when you've come up with these tools and different models, but you've created them in a way that I think everybody in the organization can understand, what was the mindset as you just kind of pulled these things together and not gone super researchy, super academic and the things that we tend to see a lot of in healthcare? I think Mark Gold, Mark Gold is no, probably no one's ever heard of Mark Gold unless you've read my book, Hardwiring Excellence, and I'm not sure people would catch it. Mark, Mark Gold was a, getting a PhD at Southern Illinois University in 1960. To get his, do his research work, he was going into institutions and he was taking people that supposedly had limited ability, but teaching them to do complex. And he was teaching them by breaking it down to simple steps. So of course, being a teacher for 10 years, my goal was always to take something complex and break it down to simple steps. So let's take something like patient communication. So if we take patient communication, we're out there looking at, you know, patients that felt communicated with. So we started studying what were the techniques. We said, well, patients seem to like when the healthcare provider acknowledges them by name. Ah, that became acknowledge. What else? Well, they really like when they introduce themselves. And not only introduce themselves, but even tell a little bit about themselves. Like, I've done this, I'm trained in this, you know, because all of a sudden your anxiety goes way down. Ah, that's I. Well, now what else do we want to do? Well, people like to know how long something's going to take. I remember getting a little skin cancer taken off my nose. And before the doctor started, I said, can you tell me how long it's going to take? He said about a half hour. I said, would you mind then if I go to the restroom before this thing starts? So duration is important. How long is it going to take? Or like, look at now COVID-19. The number one question is, when do I get results back? 
So when do I get my results back? Then the E says, can you explain things? Which I call narrate the care. And then the last one is say thank you. Now, if you add those five things together, it became our toolkit called AIDIT. Acknowledge, introduce, duration, explain, and thank you. Um, in Sarasota, Florida, Jarvis, years ago, we were looking at turnover. And we noticed one of the Nina, Nina, uh, Nina in, in the department, Nita, excuse me, in the department, had very low turnover. But everybody else had high turnover. And they said it was because they were in Sarasota, blah, blah, blah. And we said, what do you do? She said, I meet with my employees every 30 and 90 days. And we say, what do you do? She said, I ask them these questions. So we started piloting her questions, you know, which is how well do we match to what we say we're going to be like? Who's been helpful to you so we know who's eating their young and who's not eating their young in healthcare? You know, do you have the equipment and tools that you need to do the job and how can I be helpful? So I just tried to always simplify something which we should do naturally in healthcare. I mean, we know when we go to the doctor's office, they're going to weigh us. We know they're going to do their blood pressure, our blood pressure. All I'm trying to do in leadership is do the same thing we've done everywhere else which is create consistency. Because when we can standardize and create consistency, we can get to always. And, and you played at University of Miami. You know what your coach's goal was? Consistency and always. Hold the block. Hold the block. You know, and that's what that's what I, I think in healthcare, but we have to connect Jarvis enough and I'll, I'm sorry to go on so long. No, no, you're good. We got to connect to the values and that's my secret ingredient here for all your callers. If we can connect to values, that's how we get the always. Because if you can connect to values, people cannot not do it because healthcare people are very value oriented. So again, this is an HCA story, ironically. Years ago, I was working with a number of HCA hospitals in Texas. And we met with some ER people and their results were um, less than what they wanted at the time. And we asked them why. And they said, well, because um, we have some interim nurse manager. We have too much manager turnover. Um, gee, we got too busy. You know, we had all these, all these reasons why our results aren't what we want to be. So then because these were all nurses, I just said, tell me some patient symptoms when they come in. So I said, if a patient comes in with an accident, car accident, what would you do? And of course, I'd say, well, immediately you look for shock. We do this, we do. If, if I come in and, and I've got these symptoms, what do you do? Whoa, that's chest pain. Here's what we do. Boom, boom, boom. That's a stroke. Here's what we do. Boom, boom, boom. Every time we came up with a clinical thing, they said, here's what we do. Boom, boom, boom. And I said, okay, now what happens if I come in with chest pains, but you have an interim nurse manager? Would you still do these things? They looked at me like, don't be stupid. Of course we would. What, what happens if I come in with, with possible shock? Would you still do these things even though you had manager turnover? Of course we would. What happens if I come in with this, but you're really busy? Would you still do this? Yes, we would. Why? Well, because we have to do these because you have to have the best clinical outcome possible. So I said, we have to correct behavior to clinical outcome. Let's give you a few examples. Why I don't use the word HCAPs or any of these? Because people aren't going to want to improve HCAPs, but they do want to manage pain. They do want the patient to know the side effects of Medicaid. They do want to listen and answer questions. Turnover. This is uh, Jarvis. 
the Voluntary Hospital Association years ago came off with a study, the largest study ever done, where they measured turnover and mortality. Hospitals that had lower employee turnover had lower um, acuity adjusted mortality. That meant that it showed that there was a correlation between retention of staff and deaths. So now I was in a big healthcare system and they had five big CEOs and one of them just didn't want to put in techniques like peer interviewing, 30 and 90 day meetings, good onboarding, because you know, he just didn't want to do it. And I said, so you're telling me, even though there's tools and techniques that could lower turnover, you don't want to do them. So you're saying you're okay with more people dying rather than you putting in tools and techniques to lower. So my message Jarvis is we have to always look. So I might not want to do lean if I don't think it's going to improve the clinical outcome, or I don't think it's going to make my life better. But if I can tie any quality indicator to the best new, making my patient's life better or my life better, I'm probably rounding. We did the biggest study ever in rounding falls. We were actually studying falls. And at the time, every hospital would go in every two hours. And we found out whether you went in two hours, five hours, or four hours, the falls were always the same. They didn't go down till you went in every hour. Now, you lowered falls, but you know what else you did? You, you reduced call lights for almost 34%. So now to the staff, I'm not only reducing call lights, but I'm reducing falls. So how can I not go in every hour? So once we tie to the values, then we get the always, because you cannot not do it. Just like you have a, you have a son, right, Jarvis? Yes, sir. And once there are certain behaviors you do that's going to make his life better, you, you, can't, you can't say only hold my hand when we go across the walk 80% of the time. It's going to be you hold my hand every single time. When you go into the car, even though it's a pain to put them in those dang car seats till a certain age, you will do it because your values as a parent kick in. And once we connect to the employees' hearts, well, then we get to always. And that's really where we want to go. I loved, again, just a lot of your takeaways, everything you share there. Um, and that that was, I think for me, one of the things that drew me in because I, I tell everybody, Quint, I came into healthcare on accident. I thought I was just taking a job to kind of get me to the next thing until my wife and I could have gotten back down to Miami. And, um, you know, I came into healthcare and I started working with professionals that were the most passionate that, you know, just believed in, I mean, above and beyond. I came into healthcare, I started my career at Duke Hospital, and that's where I was for the first several years. And again, just that experience pulled me in to where now this is the chosen path. So I think everything you shared there, again, resonates very strongly with me. Um, I know it also go very far with our listeners. So um, thank you just for that mindset. But uh, next question I have for you, um, again, curious to, to learn more about you on this question, but is there an entry relevant leader that has had a true impact on your career? And what was that impact of so? Mark Clement. Mark, Mark Clement, he's the president of Tri Healthcare right now. Nice. Um, Mark Clement, um, and let me tell you two things that he did, which I'm not just like anecdotal evidence. He was the CEO and I was the COO. And we had made a mistake and killed a patient. And he went with the family and admitted that we had made a mistake and he went head at it. He didn't sit here and act like it wasn't our fault. 
he took full responsibility for an error that I didn't ever see before. Normally when you have an error, you bring all these risk managers around you and he just went full bore. Yeah. I I can't say I've ever heard of an example like that in my career. So, so the, the second thing he did was we're a hospital that's like really, really financially in trouble. So we had to subsidize a lot of the specialists to come to our hospital because there wasn't the payer mix was so bad. They just couldn't do it and not their fault. They just couldn't do it. So because of our babies that were born with positive drug cultures that we, we didn't have a NICU unit, but we had to bring neonatologists into our OB unit to stabilize the baby to be transferred to a NICU somewhere. Okay. So we were subsidizing neonatologists in the city of Chicago. Well, as we got better, Jarvis, we started doing better. All of a sudden, when our patient sat went up, all of a sudden, insurance companies that wouldn't cover us before wanted us in their network. So now, all of a sudden, we're getting a little more popular. So now, two, three years into this, um, he asked me to, our neonatal contract is up. He asked me to bid out our neonatal services again. So I bid it out. And of course, the, the group that's been there bids, bids it out. But other groups that want to get in bid it out. And lo and behold, I could save our hospital some you know, decent money by switching neonatology group. So I'm pretty excited. So I go to tell Mark that, you know, look at what I've done. And Mark says, nah, we just can't switch. He said, they were with us when we really needed them. So yeah. now that we're doing better, we can't dump them because they didn't dump us. And, and he led with values again. Yeah. And that's always been reminiscent um, that you, when somebody's been with you through the hard times, when you don't, when you get good, you stick with them. And so those are just two real, real quick questions. And even today, um, Mark's uh, read in Try Health about, oh, maybe 10, 11 months ago, he brought in an outside company to help him with identifying bias and um, diversity and inclusion. Now, this was before George Floyd, before all this thing has erupted. Yet over a year ago, he was on it. And he's leading the way. So he led the way. I'm on the board, and it's mandatory that I go through bias training. It's mandatory that I go through these programs. Um, and yet when the, the COVID-19 hit and of course hospitals are losing millions of dollars and they're making budget cuts, guess what Mark is not cutting and bias. So yeah. once again, Mark was yeah. way ahead of the curve. And that's just the latest example of um, why I'm so, in, he's been such a huge influence on my life and continues to be an influence. Uh, absolutely wonderful and impressive uh, kind of hard to not be impressed with that type of leadership. So um, now thank you for that. And uh, next question I have for you, Quint, is um, what has been your biggest customer success story to date? And why do you think it was a success? Well, I think almost so much of what we do has been successful in that arena. Um, certainly the, the patient experience stuff has been huge. The employee engagement stuff has always been huge. The physician things, for those people that aren't aware of this, um, we do our Studer Community Institute, which is my not-for-profit. It's um, studeri.org, people can go on. We're doing some really cool stuff with early brain development for children that are 
uh, when a woman has a baby before they leave a hospital, they get a tutorial on brain development because 85% of the brain is developed by age three. Doing that with collaboration with the University of Chicago, with Dana Susskind, who wrote the book, 30 Million Words. Um, we've now got peer reviewed research that shows that we can help children be ready for kindergarten. I think that's pretty neat. No, it's not customer service. Probably the area of customer service, we do a lot of leadership training for small businesses. And our, our net promoter score is over, uh, is almost a 90, which is unheard of. And you know, it's all for small businesses, these onesies and twosies and eight employees, because I think they're the backbone of America. And the other big customer service one that I feel really good about is I own a double A baseball team called the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. And um, we measure um, fan satisfaction more than any other team possible. I mean, and now we're not playing this year, but in the past, our net promoter score has always been higher than Ritz and Disney, and that's for minor league baseball. But it all starts out the same stuff, Jarvis. We measure the heck out of employee and we train the heck out of lead because those are the fundamental things. Are you training your manager? And then are you making sure your employees have a great place to work? If you go do those two things, the rest of the things sort of happen. Wonderful. Perfect takeaway. So uh, no follow-up questions on that. But, uh, you know, Quint, right now we are in such a very, very, very unique time across healthcare as well as just the country. So I would love to ask, uh, what do you see as the number one challenge and the number one opportunity for today's healthcare leaders? Well, I think I think in today's healthcare leaders, I think when I look back at it, that the challenge is going to be that we have so much tied up into bricks and mortar. If you're in the in the, or the regular healthcare system, it's hard for you to look at ways to deliver care because you're trying to support what you currently have. And I've always felt that healthcare was good from the outside, and it was no surprise. I think when Walgreens just announced that they're putting in physicians in so many of their stores. When you look at what Walmart is doing, starting to put healthcare in. I think the COVID-19 has really shown how quickly we can adjust to things like telemedicine. And the problem with telemedicine, of course, it wasn't that we couldn't do it, it's that we weren't getting reimbursed for it. And, and I'm really hoping we still get reimbursed for it because the biggest issue I think patients have is access, access and experience. And what telemedicine does is help people get better access and the experience is actually pretty good. I think we have to do a lot of training. So I think, I think the greatest thing that for healthcare to do is sometimes you've got to be willing to go into uncharted waters. And we, we, in healthcare, we only go in uncharted waters when we are forced to go in uncharted waters. Give you an example for you, those of you that weren't even born when this was happened. Do you know we used to call something called one day surgery that took two days, but we called it one day. So if you were having same day surgery, you'd come in the night before. And then sometimes you'd even stay the night after. So our one day surgery could be three days. And then all of a sudden the government said, we're not paying for the night before and we're not paying for the day after. Well, gosh, we threw a fit. We said, my God, these patients are gonna have bad care. They're gonna leave the hospital with IV poles hanging out of their bodies. This is terrible. But it forced us to do a pre-call before they came in, a post-call when they leave, and dang it if the most satisfied patients weren't outpatient and one day surgery. We in healthcare do not make changes until our backs are against the wall, spikes are sticking into our back, 
And then do we say, we're going to take a step forward. So I've been real impressed with something like Providence Healthcare out west with DexCare, which is a telemedicine platform. Um, I've been impressed again I'm with TriHealth, who's now managing 250,000 covered lives in population health, because we really don't offer population health. We offer population health if you're covered by insurance. So I, I think the next thing is the health disparity that we've got to grab. And again, TriHealth is, it, Bethesda Foundation is hitting that pretty hard. So I, I think the hardest thing for us to do in healthcare is we just hate to leave where we're currently at. Just like now we're creating flexible workforces. We're not, we didn't do, you know, right now we have 178 employees in my companies. We got all these people working flexible. Heck, they could have been working flexible last year, but none of them were working flexible because we thought they all needed office space. So I think sometimes Jarvis, you, we just don't do it unless you're forced to do it. Nick Saban didn't change his offense until he had to change his offense at the University of Alabama. So sometimes we don't make changes until we have to. Absolutely. And let me let me kind of go off topic really quickly. But uh, one of the things that I've been seeing just in general across the industry is the it feels like, if nothing else, the rise of the chief innovation officer. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but any thoughts just about formalizing innovation roles? Does that is that something that maybe gets us a step or two ahead of some of the force change? I, I think in Jarvis, you always have to be careful in healthcare because you have to be careful when you give somebody a title, you're not giving permission for other people not to do it. it it's Point. The, you know, the, the head of patient experience, you know, I give you again, and again, I'm all for all these things, but it all depends on the people and the system. So I was in Arkansas years ago and I was walking around with the head of patient experience. And she was walking to every nursing unit. She was working like crazy. And these nurse managers, I, I, I said, you've got to quit doing this. She goes, why? I said, because you're doing it. The nurse managers aren't doing it. She goes, if I don't do it, nobody will do it. I said, no, you, you've got to quit doing certain things. So I think, I think you have to create an innovation culture. And you can have certain people leading it. But you can't think, people can't think, because you're in charge of lean, I'm no longer in charge of making sure it's a fit. So in healthcare, yeah. we, get, we tend to think if we name somebody something, it'll solve the problem. It won't unless you really talk about, but this doesn't mean you're off the hook. Yeah, I was going to bring that same example back to lean and quality improvement. That, that is absolutely what I fought in all of my roles to try to get people to realize that's your job too. Yeah. So, so, for example, chief quality officer, here, here's her chief medical officer, whatever. Um, the challenge is nobody reports to them. They can't hold anyone per se accountable. Yet with their unbelievable great personality, their persuasiveness, their education, they're supposed to talk about people changing behavior. Only when you can go into that person's evaluation and change how they're being evaluated. So all of a sudden, for example, if you're in charge of quality, but you're not managing that person, then you've got to at least have influence on their evaluation. So if you're trying to measure a clinical quality mm -hmm. metric, you better make sure you can go into that manager's eval and make sure you put that in their eval. So here, Jarvis is a true example. The hospital system had what they called the best practice department, but nobody called the best practice department. They, they sort of sat there trying to get people to use their best practice because people weren't being held accountable for outcomes. Now, once you hold people accountable for outcomes, they start running to the best practice department because mm -hmm. now they're pulling you on my unit. 
So the big question in healthcare, what we've always been lousy in, we have ineffective evaluation. So I always say, I can't get results in an organization unless you let me go in and wiggle that about. So if Jarvis, all of a sudden, there's a quality metric, um, let's just say something real simple, maybe um, it's um, some type of infection. And if if that's not in your evaluation, it becomes a nice have, not a must have. If you're in charge of surgery, and first case start time is not on your evaluation, I probably won't get first uh, heart, first you know case start times. Now, if all of a sudden first case start time is in your eval and the best practice department has tools and techniques to get the case started on time, I'm all over them. So I think what's really weak in healthcare for years, which has killed quality is they have to have access to changing the person's evaluation system so the person's held accountable for the quality that the chief quality officer is trying to help them get to. So it's so funny and amazing that you even made that connection, Quint, because the two roles that I've had where I've been, I would say, most successful is when I've been able to pitch to our senior executive teams that um, that senior leaders and then cascading on down should also be accountable, accountable to some very specific project results that we were leading. And without fail, those have been the best projects that I've worked on, to your point. So Bernard Tyson, the, you know, the, the tragically passed away last year, head of um, Kaiser. When we were looking years ago at HCAPS, one of the things that he noticed was nurse communication was, and those patients that felt the nurse communicated them better had better HCAP results. Bernard put that in every senior executive's incentive comp plan. So every senior executive, even if you didn't even have patient care, had nurse communication in your incentive comp. So if you're the CFO, you're still waking up every day saying, hope to God the nurses are communicating. So once we build that accountability system in, then we align the behavior. And once we align the behavior, then we get the results. So I, I think chief quality officers and all these people have had their high ends tied behind their back because they've been nice to have instead of must to have. And that's why chief medical officers always liked uh, a good evaluation tool could allow them to go into the manager's eval, plug in some quality indicators. So now they were, you know, didn't have to be pushing so hard. They were there being pulled to help get that quality indicator up. Oh, perfect. Perfect mindset. Those are really great thoughts, um, Quint. I am going to go ahead and move us into the next segment of the show, something that I call the two-minute drill. Um, very much kind of a playoff of my old football career, so it's my version of a rapid-fire Q&A, but I always like to check with my guests to make sure you guys are ready. So how are you feeling, Quint? You ready? No, I'm ready. We're on the 10-yard line, and I'm going to put the ball in. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, Quint, the uh, first question I have for you is something of a two-parter. I would love for you to first tell our quality people something about your work that inspires you to do your best, and then also share how do you inspire other professionals. My, my work to do my best is truly I, see, I like seeing other people be successful, and that was a big part of my career. I think for a while I was envious of other people's success, then it hit me that I probably get more joy out of seeing other people's success than my own success. So that's my big turn on right now. And I think, you know, Jarvis, it's like that coach that has a player beyond, go beyond what they ever did, but they're still excited for that player's success. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, could you share with us the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? Um, it's an inside job. Best career advice I ever got is you've got to get your inside right. 
which means what keeps you, what blocks you. Here are the things that block somebody's insight. Things like denial, rationalization, blame, jealousy, envy. My latest talk I've given in the last couple of months and or before COVID in healthcare, and some people told me it was the best I ever did was leadership's an inside job. And it's not getting stuff, it's getting rid of stuff, getting rid of the blockages. And you know, Jarvis, you talked about straight A leadership. A big blockage in best practices is I don't get them because I, I, I don't want to learn them. Because if I, if I learn the way to do it and I can't do it, then maybe I'm not successful. So I think um, it's an inside job, leadership. All right, wonderful. And if it's okay, I, I want to jump on top of your answer there also and just say that, again, from Hardwiring Excellence, um, when I read it, I mentioned it kind of gave me personal permission to like help these teams that I support to be as great as possible, um, but being a fire starter. Um, was a piece of career advice that you learned that I gained from your book. Um, and again, just for any of our listeners who may not have read it, um, that's just one I want to add on because that's one of the messages I try to promote through this podcast is for quality improvement professionals, data professionals, project management professionals, the folks that do what I do, um, we're the experts, be that expert. And that's, you know, just something that did resonate. So appreciate that message also. Thank you. Um, Quint, what would you consider are three key attributes for being a successful healthcare leader? I, I think I brought them up earlier. You have to have great self-awareness and create tools around you. If anybody wants to drop me a note at Quint at Quintsduter.com, I just did a about a 60-minute video locally on tools to help with self-awareness. Then it's being coachable. I mean, it's sort of like that guy that worked for me that said, Quint, you get too far ahead of me, and then I can't keep the staff up because you get ahead of me. I have to be coachable. And, and since the last 30 days, two or three times now, I've slowed down, called them up and said, okay, how do we do this? And then the last part is authenticity. People get into this extrovert and introvert, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, we work in healthcare. People are smart. They know a con when they see it. They know a fake when they see it. You have to be yourself. And, you know, if you're quiet and shy, you're quiet and shy. It doesn't mean you can't be an effective leader. And, um, you know, we had coaches at Studa Group that were more introverted. And sometimes people would say, well, they're not passionate. So one of the things we did is we asked them to tell people when you start why you're doing the work you do. And all of a sudden when they explained why they're doing the work they do, oh, I get it. You just might not show passion, but it doesn't mean you don't have it inside of you. So I, I think it's self-awareness, coachability, and authenticity. All right, wonderful. And next question I have for you is, could you please share with our quality people one professional society and one professional conference that you think will be a value at? Well, I think they're all good. It depends on what you get out of it, you know? Um, and, and so I've always, I've always sort of liked, um, I've been very involved in things like CAMI, CAM, um, certification of masters in healthcare administration and some of the bachelor programs, AUPHA, because I like them because they're young students, they're professors, and they're constantly looking at how to make things better and they're still idealistic. So I sort of like going where young people are because they're, they're, they're still wide open with their eyes wide open at the world. So I think and um, AUPHA is, is really good. Um, I also think you should venture out into other things. I used to go to fast companies conferences. I used to go to Inc. conferences because I think you can get a lot out of conferences that are not just about healthcare. So you're always trying to, high-performing people 
can learn from other industries and bring it into their industry. Mid performers need someone to do that. Low performers are just going to think it's not their. Now that, that's great advice. And even for me, I keep a personal budget, at least pre-COVID, uh, to try to make it to one industry-relevant conference, like some big conference um, every year, but then also one non-industry conference. So I try to balance my approach personally. So I appreciate hearing that as well. Uh, next question I have for you, Quint, is if you could recommend one book to our quality people, what would it be and why? Um, my, one of my favorite books still is In Search of Excellence by Tom P. I think it's a book that's probably 30-something yeah. years old, but I've always loved that book. I loved what he did, and I love how he presented it. And it's one of those books that has had a huge impact on me. All right, so two things. I, I just looked over here. I was like, yep, it's on my, on my shelf over here. Um, so thank you for that recommendation. And two, I knew you weren't going to mention any of your books. So if it's okay, I just want to take a second, not to brag too much, but just to say, um, Quint, just to say, you know, I have on your bookshelf right now, on my bookshelf, um, Hardwire and Excellence, Results at Last, Straight A Leadership, uh, 101 Answers, and a Culture High Performance. So, um, so again, not even knowing that I'd ever have a chance to talk to you or connect with you one-on-one like this, just to let you know, your writings and your books, tremendous impact, plus the two that you gifted me as well, which I cannot wait to jump into. So thank you okay. for your yeah. contributions also. And for any of your listeners, um, if they drop me an email, quint at quintstuter.com, I'd love them to send them a copy of my two latest books. One is called Building a Vibrant Community. It's for let's take, you know, can let's not only make our organization better, let's make where we live better. And let's talk about how to make your community a better place. And the other one is the Busy Leader Handbook, which was lucky enough to hit number five on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And that's to me 41 best practices. And I wrote it for middle managers because the toughest job in any business, particularly healthcare, is being in the middle. And middle managers in healthcare don't get the amount of training they should get. Plus, sometimes things happen and it's sort of they need it just then. So the Busy Leader Handbook. So if people drop me a note, Studer, Quint at quintstuter.com, I'd be glad to send them um, copies of both books, um, complimentary for the work they're doing in healthcare. All right. And I, I will verify that if you do that, you will get a book. So thank you for that. And I'll make sure we get all of that in the show notes so that uh, hopefully folks will hit you up on that offer. Um, we are almost right there. Oh, shucks, Quinn, I have one more question before our big <laughs> final question. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would give to healthcare organizations to help them better manage their operations and improve outcomes? Um, I, think, I think you've really got to scope your measurement down. I think in healthcare, people have way too much. And I think a manager, we used to always try to say is a, a manager can only hit five to maybe eight maximum targets. And you know, research shows that if you try to do too much too fast, and, and so I'll sort of wrap with this up. When people used to look at, when organizations were trying things and failing, there were normally these areas, Jarvis, why they failed, okay, and here they are. Number one, they didn't have a good evaluation tool that held people accountable. So everything became a nice to have, not a must have. Number two, they didn't put enough training into the leaders and leaders need skill set. I mean, when you were playing at the University of Miami, you did a lot of repetition. I mean, think how much work you did to play like 11 or 12 games and how long that was for just 11 or 12 games. Um, number three is they do too much. They, they don't sequence right. 
you know, it's sort of like, again, I go back to football. You got to get the fundamentals down, then you can add some plays, but you don't try to put in the whole playbook day one. In healthcare, we overwhelm these people. We put their, you know, to a fire hose and you got to sequence it. When we used to teach AIDA, I would say, don't even do all five letters. Just pick one letter. Let's work on acknowledgement. Then we get acknowledgement done, we can maybe move to a thank you. Then we can maybe move to, you know, introduction, duration, or explanation. Number four is you've got to be willing to fire people. And, and in healthcare, we really struggle with making those tough decisions. And nobody wants to make them, but sometimes we've just got to let people go. And the fifth thing is you've got to connect back to the why. And, and I know we get a lot of attention on that now, but you've got to, people, people in healthcare are so busy and the why isn't connect back to why. I would almost change it and say, connect back to their values. Because once you get it back to the values, how can you not not do it? Sort of story I tell you, you know, um, before COVID-19 really hit, I was on planes a lot. And Jarvis, you've been on planes a lot. Now, for all you women that are listening, you're just going to be appalled. But let me tell you, guys are not great at washing their hands in bathrooms. I mean, I've been in airport bathrooms for years, and I bet you 50% of the guys would duck out and not wash their hands. And if they did, they sped wash them, you know, even the airplanes are built like that. You know, it's water stays on for about six seconds. Before, as COVID-19 was heating up, before they stopped everything, we were running out of soap in men's bathrooms in airports. We were running out of paper towels for the first time ever because people connected to, I have to wash my hands or I'm gonna get sick and get other people. Sounds sad that we had to get to that point. Why? Because it's values. Why do you wear a mask? Because it's people that wear masks because they're value oriented. They're not self oriented. And once we connect back to somebody's values, they cannot not do it. So once I know that if I do a better job onboarding a new employee, they'll become more successful. How can I not do a good job onboarding? So sorry to go on so long, but I no. just got to connect it back to values. And I think we're so busy with the what to do. We don't connect to the values. No, that that was perfect and wonderful. And I have to admit, as I move into my last question for you, Quinn, like part of me feels super guilty because I know I went way over our book time with you, but this has just been really uh, an Maybe exciting a two or three little podcast. <laughs> no, uh, I will figure out how to how to just you know get every ounce of value because you. I think you've like literally kind of put on a masterclass with so much of the information you've given. But um, so, yeah, I'm guilty about the time. And at the same point, I'm almost disappointed because I feel like I get to sit here and like, listen, this is the coolest part about the podcast is I get the first experience before I, you know, get it posted. And so I totally, you know, just soak up every chance to learn from leaders like yourself. So I um, want to thank you again. But as I move you, into the closer, uh, Quint, let's say that we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year has been for you and the team and the, the groups that you're supporting and leading. Take a second and think about it, but what exactly did we achieve this year and how are we celebrating? I think what we've achieved this year is we've been able to pivot. If you look at um, my baseball team, we're the only, we're, there's only two base, minor league baseball teams in the entire country that didn't lay off any staff, even though we don't have any baseball and we're one of them because we've become an event team. We're the ones that are doing the famous Airbnb at Blue Wahoo Stadium that a lot of people have heard of. I think what we're learning a lot of is communication. So our employees would feel more communicated to, they'd feel safer 
And the beauty is I'm all about creating jobs. You know, when I taught special ed, my job was to help people with special needs get vocational training and vocational jobs. So I think a year from now, if I sit back, we have a year when most places did layoffs and we ended up not laying off any employees because our mission statement, our company is to improve the quality of life. For, and I just can't see where laying off employees improves the quality of life for people in our community. So a year from now, we'd sit down and say, wow, look at that. We got a great baseball season going. We didn't play last year. We got a new stadium built in Beloit, Wisconsin, and we're playing there. And more than anything, I think for me, I really want to learn because this has forced me to really carry my message virtually. We're looking at better platforms so um, we can do some better training and skill training. Because, you know, I, I loved when I did take you and your organization to the next level. And a year from now, I'm really hoping I'm sort of back on the field, but doing it virtually so we can reach reach more people. You're wonderful. Well, I was going to say after our show wraps, I'm happy to share with you some some ideas with the, the systems that I'm using because I've converted everything virtually myself. But um, Quint, again, I, I can't thank you enough just for the knowledge share, um, the tremendous amount of time you've given. Um, before I let you go, I just want to end with, um, you shared your email address, but any other plugs or um, social media followings that our listeners can tune into? Um, and also anything from you know, all the work that you're leading, anything else that you would want our folks to maybe keep an eye out for that they can get behind, support, or plug into themselves? Well, I think we have some great things. If if they drop me uh, an email at quint at quintstuter.com, we'll sign them up for my weekly column. I write a weekly column that some newspapers carry across the country. And for those of you that don't get the newspaper, you can get it sent to your email. And for example, two weeks ago was on service recovery. And I got a lot of good feedback on service recovery. This last one was on, um, this one this last week was on um, getting outside help. Because I'm amazed at how many organizations are afraid to hire a consultant because they think it's too expensive when it's too expensive not to. The column coming up that this will probably be already done is on when somebody leaves, how to make sure they leave in a value-driven way. Because I think sometimes people leave an organization, we don't treat them as well as we can. And I think we should treat them. So there's always tools and techniques. So we also have a bunch of virtual seminars coming up. We do a lot. I'm doing a lot with communities today, a lot helping communities um, become better communities. So if they just write me a note at Quint at Quintstuter.com. I will get them all sorts of things. All right. Wonderful. I know I'll be following up so I can join in on the weekly uh, column myself. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Um, Quint, thank you again. And to all of our quality people everywhere, thank you all for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and Quint, and we're signing off. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share additional resources, access to our QI community, and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.